Good. So a very warm welcome to this meeting of the Aristotelian Society. Great to see everybody here this evening. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce uh, Catherine Abel to give the paper this evening. Catherine is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Manchester University and among other things is currently working on an AHRC funded project on our knowledge of emotions. But she also has a special interest in aesthetics and more especially in the philosophy of representational arts. And in connection with this, she's been doing work on the nature of genre and what the differences between different genres are. And that's the topic of today's paper, which is entitled Genre, Interpretation and Evaluation. Uh, Catherine will speak for about 45 minutes or so. Um, and after the uh, talk, we'll have a, a brief break, a brief tea break, and then there'll be an opportunity for people to ask questions. So without further ado, I hand over to Catherine. Thank you very much. Today I want to talk to you about um, genre, and in, particularly, in particular some problems about the effects of genre on interpretation and evaluation. So what I would like to do is to answer two questions. First question being, what is a genre? And the second, what is it for a work to belong to a particular genre? Now, in addressing these two questions, an immediate problem arises because while genres are obviously categories of works, it's not clear that the term genre is used in a consistent enough way to pick out a particular single type of category. So to give you a sense of the diversity um, with which the term gets used, consider that the way in which art critics and theorists use the term is quite different from the way in which linguists and rhetoricians use it. So linguists and rhetoricians think of things like apologies, eulogies, biographies and newspaper editorials as being genres, whereas art critics and theorists are more interested in things like horror, tragedy, comedy. But even if we restrict ourselves to the way in which art critics and theorists use the term, um, they use it to pick out categories which classify, or at least appear to classify works according to a wide variety of different kinds of features. So, some of the genre categories that they will talk about classify works according to their setting. So think about the road movie or the western. Um, they could classify it according to content, so romance, according to medium, the musical, effects, comedy, the effect, it's classified in terms of its effect on an audience, tone, so consider noir, uh, budget, the blockbuster, or origins, so Elizabethan drama. So given this diversity of use of the term genre, is it likely that there'll be, it will be possible to say anything philosophically interesting in answer to my two questions? Um, well, not if we leave the term completely unrestricted. So I'm going to suggests that to get a philosophically useful account of genre, one that can help us to explain some of the interpretative and evaluative effects 
of genre membership, um, I, we need to restrict the term somewhat just to those categories that have particularly kind, particular kinds of interpretative and valuative significance. So to give you an initial idea of the kind of effects I'm interested in, um, consider this passage from James Thurber's uh, story, The Macbeth Murder Mystery. Uh, Tell me, I said, did you read Macbeth? I had to read it, she said. There wasn't a scrap of anything else to read in the whole room. Did you like it? I asked. No, I did not, she said decisively. In the first place, I don't think for a moment that Macbeth did it. I looked at her blankly. Did what? I asked. I don't think for a moment that he killed the king, she said. I don't think the Macbeth woman was mixed up in it either. You suspect them the most, of course, but those are the ones that are never guilty, or shouldn't be, anyway. I'm afraid, I began, that I... But don't you see, said the American lady, Shakespeare was... Sorry, it would spoil everything if you could figure out right away who did it. Shakespeare was far too smart for that. I've read that people have never figured out Hamlet, so it isn't likely Shakespeare would have made Macbeth as simple as it seems. I thought this over for a while while I filled my pipe. Who do you suspect, I asked suddenly. Macduff, she said promptly. <laughs> Good God, I whispered softly. So there you have an example where by classifying Macbeth as belonging to, not, not as being a tragedy, but um, a murder mystery, this has an effect on the way both in which the woman interprets it and on how she evaluates it. So these are the kinds of effects I'm interested in. So here's how I plan to proceed. Firstly, I'm going to describe in a bit more detail the interpretative and evaluative effects that I'm interested in. Then I'm going to identify some constraints on an account of genre that seeks to explain these effects. Um, I want to spend some time evaluating one account of genre that tries to explain them. And then I want to propose a new account and argue that it explains them better. Okay, so what are the interpretative and evaluative concerns at issue? Well, firstly, a work's genre membership helps to determine its content, so it has interpretative significance, by affecting, firstly, which of its features are representationally relevant, secondly, how its representationally relevant features are to be interpreted, and finally, what the, word, what the work implicitly represents. So let's take the first of these. What genre a work belongs to affects whether or not we take certain of its features to have representational significance. So think about a film that contains singing. If we classify that film, if we interpret it as a musical, we are much less likely to construe the characters as actually being represented as bursting into song than we are if we classify it as, or construe it, interpret it as a drama. Uh, similarly, in the case of painting, if we classify a painting as belonging to the cubist genre, we are less likely to have the spatial relations between the various parts we're less likely to take the spatial relations between the various parts of the depicted object, sorry, of the painting to be representationally significant than if we classify it as a realist portrait. 
Okay, so we get different interpretive effects. In addition to determining which features of a work we take to be representationally relevant, genre classification also affects how those features we do take to be representationally relevant are interpreted. So it can affect, for example, whether we think uh, feature licenses literal or metaphorical interpretation. So take the sentence or phrase, she gave up her heart quite willingly. If we take that as, interpret that as a sentence in a romance novel, we're likely to give it uh, a metaphorical interpretation. She fell in love very readily. Interpret as science fiction, we may in fact uh, uh, interpret it literally, okay? Might, might, might make the most sense to interpret it literally. So that's how um, genre membership can help determine how we take, what kind of representational significance we uh, attribute to a work's features. In addition, genre membership can affect what we take a work to implicitly represent. So we can draw a distinction between a work's explicit representational content, um, the things that are explicitly represented by the works and implicit content, things we, con aspects of content that we have to infer from what's explicitly represented. So consider a film that represents an old bearded man who looks like this. Now, if we take this film, if this film is uh, a work of fantasy, we may take this old bearded man to be a wizard. It need not state so explicitly, that might be a reasonable inference to draw. But if it's a work of gritty realism, that, that inference is unlikely to be licensed. Um, so sometimes, according to genre, inconsistencies or unusual aspects of content require us to infer a whole lot of implicit um, stuff in order to make sense of them. So say in a murder mystery, uh, an inconsistency or an unusual aspect of content would require kind of us to attribute certain implicit content in the work. But if it's a children's story, uh, we can have clothed elephants and we don't think anything of it. Okay. So those are the interpretative effects of genre membership that I'm interested in. But genre membership also has evaluative effects. Of course, some of these evaluative effects, effects on how we evaluate the work, are going to stem directly from its interpretative effects, because on some interpretations, a work might be better than on other interpretations. But in addition to this, genre membership can affect evaluation directly. Okay, That is, even if we hold interpretation um, fixed, it can, genre membership can still influence the value that we assign to specific features of a work. So what I have in mind here is that a work that elicits continual laughter might be classified as good, might be evaluated as good in virtue of doing so if that work's a comedy, but bad in virtue of doing so if it's a tragedy. Say. Um, I mentioned inconsistencies in content um, just before. I don't know if any of you remember this is in the news. They did a, a promotional still for the soap or whatever it is, Downton Abbey, and someone left a plastic bottle of water. Um, 
in the background. So this would be a bad making feature in a historical drama, but not in a fantasy. Okay, so features like this affect our evaluation differently according to what genre we take a work to belong to. So that's, those are the effects on interpretation and evaluation that I'm hoping to explain. But of course, it's not enough for an account of genre and of genre membership just to explain these effects. We need that account to be consistent with some other we might think of as structural features of genre. So what I want to do now is to identify some additional constraints on an adequate explanation of why genres have those interpretative and evaluative effects that will kind of provide us with more tools for assessing um, the proposals. So what do I mean by structural uh, features of genre? Well, the fact that genres, here's a list of the kinds of things I think, kinds of features, facts about genres that an adequate account of genre should explain. Um, or, sorry, it, ideally it would explain them, but at, at least it has to accommodate them. Firstly, genres have histories. What I mean by this is that the features that are characteristic of works in a particular genre at one time might differ from the works that are characteristic of works in a, uh, the features that are characteristic of works in a particular genre at a later time. So, for example, we have the film theorist Foster Hirsch talking about genre change. In its brief history, film noir changes its focus, mood, and visual style as its point of view shifts from objective to subjective, and its decor slides from studio stylization to location realism. So that's one example of genre change. Another example uh, is provided by horror. So early horror movies, the fear-inspiring uh, subject is uh, often vampire, a vampire. But later horror movies, so horror movies of the 1990s, um, are much more often concerned with psychopaths than with vampires. And then more recently, we see in horror movies a concern with global germ warfare. Okay, so there's a change in the features characteristic of works in the genre over time. Secondly, genres can cross media. So it's not a case of one genre, one medium. Um, you can have tragedies in a variety of different media. A very obvious example of a case where genres Cross media is where you have the same work realised in two different uh, media. So we have the novel, The Big Sleep, and the film, The Big Sleep. So an adequate account of genre needs to accommodate the fact that genres can cross media. Also needs to be consistent with the fact that a single work may belong to more than one genre. So here we have an example of a work that is both a work of science fiction and a work of horror. Okay, so it belongs to both of those genres. Distinct from that, we can have works that belong to a hybrid genre. So one genre can be a hybrid of two other genres. So an example of this would be the space western, which is a hybrid between the western 
and the space opera. So I take it here that by being a hybrid, the work is neither a space opera nor a Western, but the distinctive hybrid genre, belongs to the distinctive hybrid genre, the space Western. The final structural feature, I think, that an account of genre needs to accommodate is the fact that there are hierarchical relations between genres. So here's the kind of thing I have in mind. Uh, we have crime drama, and then there are various subgenres of crime drama. So there's the police procedural, the heist, the cosy, noir, there's a courtroom drama and the detective drama. But then there are going to be subgenres of some of these subgenres. So, for example, hard boiled detective drama is a subgenre of detective drama. Now, you could try and create um, indefinitely more subgenres, okay? But you can't arbitrarily um, create subgenres. So, I could say, oh, well, a subgenre of the hard boiled detective drama is a hard boiled detective drama featuring Robert Mitchum. Um, but it's unlikely that at some level you're going to stop getting the interpretative and evaluative effects that I'm concerned with. So the point is that among works with particular interpretative and evaluative effects, there are hierarchical relations. Okay, so, so far we have two criteria, two sets of criteria for evaluating uh, accounts of genre and genre membership. We have Firstly, uh, that we want them to explain the interpretative and evaluative effects of genre membership. And secondly, we want an account to accommodate these sort of structural features of genre and genre membership. Now, there's an awful lot written in film theory and literary theory about genre, but almost nothing written in the philosophical literature. So there are very few papers uh, that attempt to explain these uh, evaluative and interpretative effects. I'm just going to talk about one philosopher's proposal today um, before I kind of put forward my own idea. But film theorists who talk about, and I'm much more familiar with the literature in film theory than I am with the literary theory, commonly assume um, that genres are categories determined by features of work, so that they classify works according to their kind of manifest perceptible features. And it's true that there are features that are commonly shared by works in a given genre. The problem with this approach, though, is that any of the features that we pick out as being distinctive of a given genre, so setting in the Wild West is, seems to be distinctive of the Western, there can be movies set or novels set in the Wild West that aren't Westerns. Okay? So it's hard to find features that are unique to works in a particular genre. And it's hard to identify combinations of features that are possessed by all the works in the genre. So you'll get things that are Westerns but lack the characteristic setting, perhaps or lack some of the um, other themes common to works in the Western genre. So these kind of considerations have led to scepticism, at least among film theorists, about the prospects for defining individual genres. So they've tended to 
construe individual genre concepts, like the concept of noir or the concept of the Western, as family resemblance concepts or as organised by resemblance to prototypes. Um, now, of course, my purpose here isn't uh, to provide accounts of individual genres. So what I want to do is assess Gregory Curry's account uh, of, of what general philosophical account of what a genre is and his attempt to explain the interpretive effects of genre. He's not so much concerned with its evaluative effects. Um, he construes genres as simply as sets of features that works can have. Now, on the face of it, this is quite strange because one implication is that for any set of features a work can have, there is a genre. So there are many, many more genres on this construal than one would ordinarily think. However, it's not as profligate as it initially sounds because the criteria for genre membership for a work to belong to a genre are more exacting. Okay, so for a work to belong to a genre, it's not just a matter of it possessing the features um, characteristic of the genre, but of it possessing some of these features and for its doing so to create the expectation among members of the community in which it was produced that it will possess the other features. So a work that has the features but fails to produce the expectation is not a member of the genre at issue. So you have many genres, but genre membership will be much more limited. Now, Harry wants to explain at least the interpretative effects of um, genre membership as being a as resulting from these expectations. So the idea is, and he's mainly concerned with implicit content. Um, these expectations, the, so the fact that a work's possessing some features creates the expectations, the expectation that it will possess the rest of the features um, distinctive of a genre, um, leads to it creating genre-based implicatures. So, consider our old bearded man. The idea is, here's a work, well, let's imagine it features, this man features in a film. Here's a work that has, I don't know, some toadstools and a long man with long hair and a beard and other, and a dragon. Okay, so it has some of the features characteristic of fantasy films and that will lead us to expect it to possess the rest namely wizards, thereby creating the implicature that this man is a wizard. Okay, so that's his explanation about, of how genre membership affects implicitly ascribed content. The problem with this is that there seem, we seem to be able to distinguish between different kinds of expectations. So if a work, consider a work that possesses some of the features of a romance. It has two young people who are very attracted to one another, some kind of impediment that looks like preventing them from uh, getting together. 
But imagine that the story ends before it's ever clear whether or not they overcome the obstacles. I don't think we automatically generate the implicature that they get together and live happily ever after. Rather, the story simply ends before we know what happens. Okay? So here we have an expectation. Of course, you would normally expect a romance to end happily, but you don't seem to get the implicature that Carrie is relying on doing all the work in, or thinks is responsible for the generation of implicit content. So without an explanation um, of what the difference is between the two kinds of expectations, those that generate implicatures and those that fail to generate implicatures, we have at least um, a part of the story. Uh, sorry, at most part of the story. And I think there are some other problems with Curry's account too. Firstly, because he thinks of genres as being categories that are just determined by sets of features of works, he has difficulty explaining how the features of a genre at one time, features characteristics of works in a genre at one time can differ from the features characteristic of the works in the same genre at a later time. Okay, so he has difficulty explaining or accommodating genre change. And he also has a lot of difficulty accommodating the fact that genres can cross media. So consider the kinds of features that are distinctive of film noir. Now, I've already said that noir crosses media. You don't just have film noir. You have film noir, noir novels, noir stories. Now, some of those features are going to be medium-specific. Okay? That is, they're going to be specific to noir filmic works. And some of the features are going to be more general. They're going to be shared by the works in different media. But the point is in any individual instance, so say the red features are the features in virtue of which uh, we classify a particular work as being a film noir, those features together seem sufficient to make the film a, a noir film, but the features shared, that they share with noir novels and noir stories don't seem an, enough to license the cla genre classification. Right? So you don't have enough features shared across media to explain why works in all media belong to the same genre on this kind of feature-based account. Now, there are things that Curry could do here. One thing he could do is to give a more abstract specification of the genre-determining features. Um, so specify the features that are responsible uh, for determining a work's genre at, at just at a higher level of abstraction. So, and this would give us more features that are common to noir films, novels, and stories. So what I have in mind here is, say, rather than saying that what's distinctive of noir films is that they characteristically employ Dutch angle shots, talk about it, rather they have an alienated mood, okay? And this happens to be realised by the cinematography and partly by the use of Dutch angle shots in films, but it's realised in a different way, say, through first-person narration in novels. So then you get more features common across media but I also think this tactic takes for granted some of what we want an account of genre to explain. What we want 
of an account of genre or noir, say, is to explain why Dutch angle shots establish an alienated mood in noir films but have different effects in films of other genres. Um, so here's uh, an example of a still from a noir film where the Dutch angle shot, so the tilted angle, um, creates a sense of alienation, okay, as the character runs the streets at night. But here we have the same technique being used in the film Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which is being used to show that they're really high on drugs. Okay, so same technique, very different um, effect, and in horror to create an atmosphere of fear. Okay, so what we want from our account of noir is to explain why um, Dutch angle shots have that effect, particular effect in that context. And too abstract a specification of, of the features distinctive of particular genres is also going to uh, fail to, to rule out enough. So an alienated mood, for example, is as much a feature of tragedy as of noir. So what's distinctive is how the alienated mood of noir is achieved. All right, so those are the problems, I think, that to which Curry's account is subject. So now what I want to do is to propose an alternative account and um, argue that it provides us with better explanations of the interpretative and evaluative effects that I'm concerned with and that it does a better job of accommodating the kind of structural features of genres um, that I've, I've identified. And the motivation, I guess, for my approach is the observation that different genres have different purposes. And I take to be reasonably uncontroversial. So, for example, the purpose of comedy seems to be to make us laugh. The purpose of horror seems to be to frighten us. And the purpose of mystery is to create suspense as to who committed crime or murder. Now, all of those purposes are purposes to elicit particular responses in an audience, but we need not construe the purposes of, not all genres have <gasps> such purposes. Some of them, the purpose is to create a certain kind of content. So, for example, we could construe the purpose of science fiction as being to describe logically coherent alternative worlds. Now, I'm not, my, it's a bit difficult here because my purpose is not to provide accounts of particular uh, genres. So I'm hoping that these claims about purposes, the purposes of particular genres, I kind of need some examples to run my theory. I hope that they're at least prima facie plausible. Um, but it would be up to, you know, someone... I'm sure that the, the detail's wrong, for example, but <coughs> I hope they're plausible enough that you can get my point. <coughs> All right, so here are my... what I'm proposing uh, in, by way of definitions of genre and of the criteria for genre membership. So on my construal, Genre is a category of works that is determined by a purpose of a particular kind. Okay, so genre as a category is determined by purposes, and those purposes are purposes of a particular kind, namely, 
their purposes for which works are pro produced and appreciated, and their purposes that are pursued by specific means. They're pursued by means that rely at least partly on producers and audiences' common knowledge that they have that purpose. So the idea is in order for a work Oh, sorry, I'll, do, I'll say what I've got to say about genre membership first. Okay, so then we can understand genre membership in the following way. A work belongs to a given genre if and only if it was produced with the intention that it perform the purpose characteristic of that genre by certain means. And these means are such that if they were to enable the work to perform the purpose at issue, they would do so partly in virtue of its producers and audiences' common knowledge that it has that purpose. So genres of works, they're classified by purposes for which works are produced and appreciated. Um, and the works, and those purposes, the works that belong to them pursue those purposes by means that rely on common knowledge that they have that purpose. Um, so common knowledge, I mean, producers need to know that audiences know that they're produced for that, to be produced and to be appreciated for that purposes, and audiences know that producers know that they're produced and to be appreciated for that purpose. So I hope this will become um, a little bit clearer. So. Obviously, someone who produces a horror film may do, or let's say a comedy, may do so for any of a number of different purposes. A variety, you would typically have a variety of different purposes for producing the comedy. One might just be to pay the rent. Right? Um, now, that's not a purpose for which works are produced and appreciated. But there might be purposes for which works are produced and appreciated that, it, that the work doesn't pursue, pursue through means that rely on common knowledge of that purpose. So the idea I have here is that, so with a comedy, comedies, the purpose of comedy is to elicit laughs. Many works that are not comedies um, success, are successfully intended to elicit laughs. What's supposed to be distinctive about comedy on this view is the means by which comedies pursue that aim relies on producers and audiences knowing that that is their purpose. And this enables the producers of comedy to exploit material, uh, to exploit the um, comic potential of material that would otherwise seem offensive or mundane uh, or disgusting. Uh, just because audiences are primed to receive it in a certain way. So by way of illustration, um, consider something about Mary. I don't know who's familiar with this film, where Mary inadvertently puts sperm in her hair, thinking it's hair gel. That's kind of gross, right? But because it's a comedy and we're... Uh, primed to find it funny rather than disgusting, so we do. And similarly, the scene in Bridesmaids, 
uh, where the bride-to-be, after eating um, terrible food, has an accident in the street. Okay, those would be really disgusting if they happen in real life, but the fact that we that producers of comedies are able to trade on common knowledge that the works are intended to be funny enables them to make us laugh by means that might not otherwise would not otherwise be available. Now, I'm not claiming that every work that belongs to a genre needs to actually achieve the purpose characteristic of that genre. So there are unfunny comedies. Um, rather, what needs to be the case is that the means by which they seek to perform that purpose has to be such that if they did succeed, they would do so partly in virtue of common knowledge of that purpose. Um, so if I tell a joke that is, I intend to be so unfunny that it's laughable and thereby funny, I might fail, but had I, had, had I succeeded, the only way I would have done so is in virtue of your um, our common knowledge that that was my purpose. Okay. So that, that's the idea. So how does this account purport to explain uh, the interpretive and evaluative effects of genre membership? Well, I think common knowledge of purpose guides interpretation in a manner that is broadly Gricean. So just as knowledge of um, Gricean principles of cooperative conversation um, lead us to interpret what people say so that they best conform to those principles, so too, I think, common knowledge of the purpose of a genre leads us to attribute to a work's features whatever significance best contributes to its performance of, of the purpose characteristic of the genre to which it belongs. So, remember I identified three different kinds of uh, interpretative effects of genre membership. And one was that genre membership helps us or influences whether we take certain features to be representationally significant or not. Now, consider a murder mystery in which um, there's a party, the power goes off, suddenly very dark, someone screams, then the lights go back on and there's a dead body. The question is, who was responsible? There are obvious questions to ask about that scenario. So, for example, how did the murderer manage to find the right victim in pitch blackness? Um, well, generally, readers of murder mysteries would not worry themselves with these questions. They're what Kendall Walton would call silly questions, okay, ones that we don't actually ask. Um, rather, we see that as a way of 
the, the way in which the author of the murder mystery delimits the range of possible suspects. Okay, so if the purpose of the murder mystery is to create such suspense as to who done it, we need to have a finite number of people who could have done it because there's no suspense if it could have been anyone at all. So by having everyone in a single room, we delimit the range of possible suspects. Okay? So we're not likely to attribute further representational significance to that fact. Um, similarly, uh, I think our grasp of purpose can help explain why we interpret a sentence metaphorically if we see it as belonging to work in one genre and literally if we see it as belonging to work in another. So the sentence, my earlier example, she gave up her heart quite willingly. If we take that to be uh, part of a romance novel and the purpose of romance um, as being something like to explore romantic relationships between individuals, the purpose of the genre is much better served by, by interpreting the sentence metaphorically, okay, about being about falling in love. Um, but if it's a science fiction, a sentence in a science fiction novel, the purpose of science fiction is something like to describe logically coherent alternative worlds, well, that sentence best serves, better serves that purpose if um, it's taken literally. Okay, so we have a genuine alternative world in which someone might actually give up their heart quite willingly. Uh, so I also think it helps us deal with aspects of implicit content. So why do we take the old bearded man in my earlier example, why are we more likely to take him to be a wizard if we interpret the work as uh, a fantasy? Well, because the purposes of fantasies are, fantasy is to address supernatural themes, and again, that maximises um, the contribution that that particular sentence makes to the performance of that purpose. But the purpose of gritty realism is to tell things how, it, how they are, uh, and that interpretation does not further the purpose of gritty realism. So hence the difference in interpretation. So that, I claim, is how understanding uh, genres as uh, categories determined by the purposes of works can help explain the interpretive and evaluative effects. Um, why does genre membership affect evaluation? Well, I think we have a very simple explanation on my account. We evaluate works according to how well they perform the purposes for which they are produced and a single work may perform the purpose characteristic of one genre well but that of another badly. Also interestingly I think I can have something to say um, about the fact that we can evaluate genres themselves. Okay, so people say things like, I, I hate horror. Why? Well, the purpose pursued by the horror genre is not valuable to me. Okay. So what I'm advocating is that we ditch the idea that genres are categories determined by features of works and rather see them as categories determined by purposes of works. 
Nevertheless, I think it would be good to have say, something to say about why, even if it's not possible to define individual genres um, by appeal to features of works in those genres, certain f types of features are nonetheless often characteristic of works in a given genre. Well, I think some features are going to be characteristic of works in a given genre because those features are essential to its performance of the distinctive purpose of that genre. So you can't have a murder mystery without a murder, for example. Um, but also, I think, features are often characteristic of works in a given genre because they comprise conventional means um, of pursuing the purpose distinctive of that genre. Uh, so murder mysteries are characteristically set in isolated locations, so country houses. Why is that? Well, it's a, it's a way of performing, it's a conventional means of performing uh, the task of delimiting the range of possible suspects. Okay. Um, another way of doing it is by having it set on a moving train. You can't get off or on between stops. Okay, so they're conventional solutions um, to problems, the problem of, of performing the purpose at issue. And I think from this we can get an understanding of how genre change works. I think the main reason genres change, that is the features characteristic of a genre change over time, is that the conventions employed in pursuit of its defining purpose change. So there might be a, re a variety, well there are a variety of reasons why um, genre, genre conventions change. One is that sometimes the conventionality of a particular technique for helping to perform a purpose undermines uh, its ability to perform that purpose. So the kinds of lighting that we use to um, inspire film in ordinary, uh, sorry, in very early works of horror, very early horror films, kind of seem ridiculous and laughable to us now because we're so familiar with them. Okay, so the familiarity of that technique undermines its efficacy. But also changes in technology might make available new means, new ways of performing a purpose that then become conventionalised. And I think changes in social context can account for uh, why the uh, conventions of a genre change. So my earlier example of change in the, the fear-making element in horror films um, or horror stories, they Different features might, different kinds of fear-inspiring um, element might become conventional in horror films simply because the things that frighten us change according to our global social context, our wider social context. But also there are more particular effects of social context. So I want to give just one example. Um, so sex is a common motivation in noir narratives. 
but the, the Hayes Code or the Motion Picture Production Code, which was operative in Hollywood in the 1930s, prohibited the depiction of lustful kissing and sex, which obviously um, creates a problem for people who want to make noir films, but they, come, they get around this um, by depicting sexual intercourse through symbolism and ellipsis, okay? So by developing conventional means of suggesting sexual intercourse. And by far the most dominant of these was smoking, okay? So you film people smoking, and this is a way of suggesting uh, that something else has taken place. But of course, once the Hayes Code was no longer operative, the whole new different lot of ways of showing sex were available that weren't previously available. So conventions change according to wider social context. Okay. So I think genres can cross media for the simple reason that different media can provide the resources necessary to perform the purpose characteristic of a genre. So both films and stories enable the pursuit of the purpose characteristic of noir. Now, it's not going to be true that every genre is going to have works in every medium. So you don't have horror music. You have music in horror, but you don't have horrors in the medium of music because music doesn't provide the necessary resources to, to perform uh, for the performance of the purpose characteristic of horror. But to the extent that the media provide the necessary resources, you will get genres crossing media. Um, works can belong to more than one genre simply because they might be produced and appreciated for more than one purpose and pursue each of these purposes by means that rely on common knowledge of purpose. And so, an example of a work that belongs to the horror genre, the zombie movie genre, rather, and also the romance genre. So it's independently pursuing two distinct purposes. Um, and you can also have hybrid genres when the purpose distinctive of one genre modifies the purpose distinctive of another. So my earlier example was the space western, so if we take um, the purpose of a Western as being something like to explore moral conduct in the absence of institutional social order, um, so moral conduct on the frontier, well, the space Western, in the space Western, the concern with moral conduct modifies the space opera's melodramatic purpose while the space setting um, modifies the Western's concern with historical frontiers. So it belongs to neither the Western nor the space opera, but to the specific space Western genre. So the final structural feature um, that I wanted to explain was the existence of hierarchical relations between genres. <coughs> and I think these stem quite simply from hierarchical relations between purposes. So one purpose might be a determinant of another determinable purpose. So if the purpose of the crime drama is to explore the dramatic 
potential of tr crime. This can be realised in, an, this can be done in a number of more determinate ways in the manner of the pr police procedural um, by exploring the dramatic potential of the means by which police identify the culprit of criminal activity or as in the heist by exploring the dramatic potential of the undertaking of criminal activity. Okay, so just in conclusion, I've proposed an account of genre and some criteria for genre membership that I claim uh, explain the interpretative effects of genre membership, the evaluative effects of genre membership, and can also go some way to explaining why um, genres have some of the structural features that I've identified. Now, of course, distinctions between genres are not always clear-cut, um, and I think this lack of clarity is mirrored uh, in the distinction between purposes, which are not always completely uh, obvious. But what we want is accounts of individual genres to resolve debates about particular cases. Okay, so whether, um, so for example, whether warm bodies is, uh, belongs to the hybrid genre horror-romance or to both horror and romance. That might be one question that concerns theorists. I haven't had anything to say about questions about particular genres. Rather, what I've hoped to do is to suggest the way in which people who are interested in providing accounts of genres, individual genres, should approach the task, which is to identify the characteristic purpose of that genre and not to look for sets of features um, that are distinctive of that genre. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Catherine. That was wonderful. So,